Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infrastructures Code podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Ohad Meislich. You can follow me at DevOps Ohad. And today we have an amazing guest. We have Elliot Greyburn. Elliot, say hi and present yourself. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Elliot. I've been in infrastructure for over a decade. I'm a big Infrastructure as Code fan. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Elliot. And not sure if you're that familiar with Terraform Cloud. If you are, uh, go ahead and search in Google Terraform Cloud Alternatives. And the first link you're going to see is a blog written by Elliot about some great alternatives for Terraform Cloud. We're going to talk about it later today. So Elliot really knows the space and really knows how to talk and write about the space. And we're going to hear today about the amazing journey Elliot has done in the last decade or even more than a decade. Uh, so Elliot, tell us about Palantir and infrastructure and some of your experience, please. Yeah, and you know I, I do want to caveat because I've seen enough people commenting. There are times and places where infrastructure code isn't perfect for everything, but it's but like there are a lot of really uh, very applicable use cases. Uh, it's definitely something that most organizations should be leveraging. Um, we have my journey with infrastructure like started about like 10 years ago and the primary function was how do we make uh, compute available for resources at large. It was actually my first job. My first job was building up test infrastructure and I was managing a thousand VMs on vSphere and an open stack and it was just the nightmare of nightmares, constantly things not working, not working right. And I was trying and I and I built actually a server whose whole system was like give me a hundred VMs, please. I need this for the next three hours. Uh, and, I, and I tried to build like a model like that. Um, it was it was really difficult. So when we moved into the cloud journey with AWS. This is in like 2013, 2012. Uh, yeah, about 2013. Uh, it, I don't even know if Terraform was created yet. I don't think so. It definitely wasn't popular. And so we had just built like a simple web app and the job was how do we again, make it really easy for anyone in, you know to just grab a VM and work with it. So the, the uh, purpose was to empower developers just to have access to a virtual machine, originally in vSphere and VMware, later in AWS and EC2 virtual machine. You wanted to empower those developers uh, with some uh, self-service infrastructure, right? Exactly. Like every person's first exposure to the power of like things like S3 and stuff like that, where you get like such infinite storage space and such reliability, and then compare that against on-prem experiences. Anyone that kind of I, I would say I grew up through that technical era in my career. So I watched that transition happen for, for in person and seeing like, holy smokes, this is just available. I can just do more of this. How can I make this available for the, for the rest of the business to really empower them to become the juggernaut that they are today? Um, and so that was kind of the goal. And one of the things, because we were all software engineers, we stumbled across really quickly was wanting to capture everything from S3 configuration, EC2 configuration, host configuration, everything into some type of what would later be called infrastructure as code. But at the time it was just whatever we were, whatever we were working on, uh, whatever we called it, which was just JSON objects and JavaScript, which, you know. Uh, so just yeah. make sure I understand, Terraform still didn't exist and you wanted some uh, persistent and scalable way of working with AWS. So you decided to create your own kind of solution based on JSON and Node.js? 
Yeah, we had like a visual GUI where you could drag and drop services between VMs. Like it was the cutest thing. You could just like drag a Postgres instance up and down a VM. There's like very few things that have actually beaten that. And we did this in like 2013. Um, and you could edit using that concept, like all the configuration of that underlying instance and, and it would all save down to these JSON objects. Yes. You know, today, the... some, sorry for interrupting, but today no. some people say, you know, no code and low code. So you, it was like a drag and drop solution kind of low code, you don't need to be an expert in infrastructure, you can drag and drop some things and behind the scenes creates all of the relevant JSONs and configurations. And that eventually is being executed with the cloud. So is that the approach you've taken back in Palantir? Yeah, so actually the person who created this as a Hack Week, this part of the Hack Week project, his name was Ron Sun, uh, created the drag and drop interface and that concept. And yeah, it was like a no code, but it was this hybrid, which I've seen time and again, which was the idea was we would present people that didn't really know infrastructure, a model that they could work with, which would translate into a configuration that we could then work with, then templatize uh, and work from there. So it was like the very early vestiges that like turned into the infrastructure as code movement at least. And, and when did you decide that it's uh, probably later when Terraform uh, became more mature, or not sure if mature is the, is, is the right word to describe, but became more uh, popular or more reasonable to, to try. So when did you first move to, to Terraform? How did you find out about Terraform? And what made you decide to move from your in-house kind of solution to something open source maintained by a community like HashiCorp Terraform? We got a chance somewhere around 2015, a carte blanche to redo Palantir's uh, internal cloud infrastructure and like change up practices and mix up new things. Um, and so at that point, we were a set of software engineers kind of told carte blanche, like we want to use AWS, you're okay to use managed services, go figure it out from there. And so our first thing out of the gate is um, I had been uh, at the time studying every night for like a couple hours to learn all the different components of AWS. And I'd known the complexity of how many things you have to configure to get even the smallest instance really working. And so I knew we needed something better. And so um, the meeting of minds happened. Terraform was out. I think it was 0405. My memory is a little fuzzy, uh, but it was like really early in, but it still existed and it still mostly worked uh, for this idea that we could capture everything as code. And we were very excited. Um, it, it was one of those, like, we deployed everything and went, there's no way this is going to last with the three of us unless we do something different. So then we redeployed it all with Terraform. And, and it was that software engineering part of you that just went, this makes sense to me, this kind of model. Uh, and since then, we started pushing it out to more and more use cases and, and more and more pieces. Um, I, I spoke at a HashiComp about some of our, our use cases and everything. Um, when, when was that? Yeah. God, this was HashiComp 2, I think. Um, maybe three, uh, it, was, it was early in and it was talking about how do you secure the CI CD process overall uh, and how do you make sure that your, you know, your Terraform execution uh, and your, and your um, container execution is actually uh, protected. That's awesome. Okay, so you started using Terraform. You mentioned like version 0.4, that's, uh, that's hardcore. And <laughs> what, what, what was the experience there? Did it have uh, too many issues or was it stable enough for you to, to use? Like what, what do you feel when you know very well Terraform today compared to version 0 0.4, 0 0.5, how do you compare the journey of, you know, what do you think about the journey of Terraform, the evolution of Terraform from those early versions to where we are today? 
it could be rose tinted glasses, but I don't remember it being that bad. And I, mm-hmm. and I imagine it's one of those experiences where uh, if you dropped zero four in front of someone today, they would have nothing but whininess and complaints about it. But because it was so unique in its domain and it was so powerful compared to if uh, cloud formation at the time, which was, which was in my opinion, terrible. Uh, this was like the option and it did work. And there were a lot, there were lots of pain points, especially around the CI, the CI layer for how do I get it not to be an individual running it. And um, I don't know how many people out there on the podcast that will remember get crypt. Did you ever stumble across that ages ago? I'm not sure. Uh, it was one of those like source control based encrypting of secrets so that you could try to like create like a CI engine or something like that. Like it was like a whole thing. Uh, but that was like ages ago. Um, uh, shout out to my buddy, Andrew Karnani for finding GitCrypt. And that became like our staple for like quite a bit until we replaced it. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I remember it. I remember it solving the problem well. By the way, have you considered using a configuration management framework such as Chef or Puppet or Ansible uh, when you chose Terraform? Sounds like you considered CloudFormation and you chose Terraform. What about the older generation of, you know, some framework with some mechanisms such as Chef, Puppet, Ansible? Used them both. Used, uh, sorry, used all three, the Ansible, Chef, Puppet. Um, my... You know, we could probably do a whole podcast on just that topic. My end conclusion around configuration management is that they entirely depend on the belief of the individuals using it. Um, now, there's a tie here to Warhammer 40K, actually, uh, that most people aren't going to get, but it's, it's the collective belief that makes it work. Um, so if you have a team of people that love Puppet and you try to push them to Ansible, it's going to be rough. If you have a team of people that are using Ansible, and, and they love it, it'll work just fine for them as well. But I've never found any of those tools to be so much better than the others that it just makes sense. Really depends on the power of the people. And I've always used them in concert, even with uh, having a framework like Terraform that puts the VM there that doesn't tell you what's gonna be on the inside of that VM. So, and I've used a combination of headless puppet, server puppet, I've, tr- I've we have tried them all. And you need to do something that for sure, but otherwise I'm pretty unopinionated. So eventually it sounds like you took a hybrid approach. You used Terraform to provision the infrastructure and later on configuration management to configure the app running on this infrastructure, mainly the virtual machines, correct? Yeah. Um, we, we basically, it was a pretty fast journey where the first journey was like, how do we get the things deployed in the first place? Then it was, okay, we need to use ter- uh, infrastructure as code in order to make the maintainability more sane. And then we immediately moved on to the CIX section for how do we make this scalable across hundreds of people and not five people together in this room? How do we create sustainable practices, reusable modules, and and really started like leaning into that path. Uh, And then following that became the container path as one usually does. How do I uh, uh, figure out how to run these applications even cheaper without needing the whole VM structure? And it was a pretty standard journey, but it was cool being at the driver's seat for a lot of those. Yeah, container is also a different podcast and a very interesting kind of discussion. <laughs> the the migration uh, from yeah. full operating system virtual machines to uh, containers. Cool. So okay, so you started using Terraform in those early days. Sounds like you're more or less uh, okay with those early versions. And what about managing that? Um, what about state files? Where did you store the state files? How did you execute the code? Was it locally and on a terminal, how did you collaborate with your uh, with your colleagues 
what were the best practices or tools or yeah. methods to use those days? Can, can you share more about how you take Terraform and work with that in the real life? At the time when it was first there, that state file thing was a big problem. Um, I believe they had S3 backing or there was some backing with the state file, but they didn't have a concurrency lock or a good way to make it possible for two people to execute. So we did what felt like the oldest technique in the book, which was like that, uh, you know, like the golden rock who gets to commit the code. We did one of those where there was like a host and only one person could connect at a time. And we all coordinated and say, hey guys, I'm gonna connect to the host and run the command. And everyone knew that this wasn't right. Like you, you knew. And you were like, but it's a problem for later me to make that better. So when later me finally arrived, it became no, no concurrency, no, uh, <laughs> nothing like that whatsoever. Literally just saying, okay, guys, can I be the one to connect now? Can I get some plus, you know, it was terrible, but uh, we ended up becoming the second or first, I don't know, really early in adopters of HashiCorp's enterprise product at the time called Atlas uh, and deployed that for, um, uh, doing the CI/CD layer, and it it was super early in. I think you just mentioned something super substantial. So HashiCorp realized that Terraform, the open source, is not enough as a solution, and they started working on a commercial solution. Uh, first named Atlas, later named Terraform Enterprise, later introducing a more SaaS version uh, of that named Terraform Cloud. So you're there from the very early days of Atlas, right? Being the first yeah. or second design partner or customer of Atlas at Palantir? Yeah, uh, and, and again, this is this is ages ago, ancient history at this point, but like, um, yeah, it, using that, um, uh, it was really cool. The engineers there were fantastic. Uh, the, the HashiCorp engineers we worked with, they were extremely helpful. Um, all the instructions were written the day before. Uh, like you could, I looked up the Google Doc history, and I'm like, you typed this out last night on the way in. Um, <laughs> but they were, they were excellent, um, and they were super helpful. And, and like, yeah, there were lots of bugs, there were lots of problems, but like we knew what we were signing up for, and we were like, we're customer number two, we're gonna be, we're gonna be in for it. But it just clicked this idea that you needed a CI/CD engine, and the Jenkins of the time, or the Circles, or 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 you know, GitHub Actions wasn't there, but they didn't quite hit the mark as like trying to present this experience with Terraform. I think it's really important a lot of the time of saying, this is the intent for what you want to deploy. Are you certain you would like to do that? And CI engines are not meant for that pause break system of saying, I've captured it, let's wait a day or two and then let's hit apply. Um, and that was really important, especially early on infrastructure with Terraform where you could make a mistake and it was much easier to just like delete your entire thing or, or put yourself into an unrecoverable state. Um, so that collaboration concept, and it's where a lot of enterprise companies come from, right? It's like you start with something that the community can adopt at large, but then as it starts getting to 10, 20, 50 person collaboration across that, all of a sudden those tools start to like really struggle and these companies can introduce enterprise tools that make that collaboration possible. I think the easiest way to look at that is the difference between Git and GitHub. You know, Git is a simple open yeah. source that one engineer can easily work with and maybe also a few other engineers but if you want to have concept of pull requests and workflow and who can approve something that that like that uh, github offers way more than the basic open source free framework such as such as git cool so you were using atlas later uh, rebranded as terraform enterprise by the way for those who are not well 
not rebranded, rebuilt the entire, they, it was an entirely new code base. It was a new product. It didn't actually hit the requirements of the things before. So other technologies ended up becoming necessary. Uh, I can't talk about those technologies, but like, uh, you know, I, I can safely talk about Atlas because it no longer exists. <laughs> and so then you became a user of Terraform Enterprise or did you do something else? I've used Terraform Enterprise in my personal life, um, uh, in, in the personal cloud, as far as the um, mm -hmm. what they're using now at Palantir. That's out. I, I no longer work there, nor do I know what they currently use. Um, sure. But yeah, no, my personal life, I use Terraform Cloud. Awesome. Just for those who are not familiar, not to be confused, uh, because there is a similar name for uh, a different solution named Atlantis. So Atlas and Atlantis are totally yep. different, different things. Atlas was like Terraform Enterprise or Terraform Cloud to manage Terraform uh, in an organization as a business solution. Atlantis is an open source solution for basic GitOps and collaboration. If you change the code, it automatically executes the Terraform commands. If you have a pull request, it performs a dry run right in your pull request. So we have Atlantis, Atlas, Terraform Enterprise, Terraform Cloud. So sounds like you've spent a significant time with those. And it sounds like you explored CloudFormation a little bit. Uh, did you try other frameworks like Pulumi or Crossplane? Or uh, what is your experience? Or may, was it mainly Terraform? It was mainly Terraform. The, the challenge I, at the time, Pulumi didn't exist when I was doing most of my like tool selection for this concept. And CloudFormation uh, was too limited. It had too many problems. Um, Pulumi didn't exist at the time, or at least nobody knew about it. I'm still on the fence of Pulumi. Like, I understand... I understand kind of what they're going for, but I really, I really feel like it's one of those niche things where there will always be somebody out there who really likes it, but it's not going to go mainstream because I think it's too many abstractions on too many abstractions. Again, it, it's more of me looking at it from a distance. Terraform solves my problems. Is it perfect? No, but like it solves the problem that I needed to solve. And I don't fully understand why using a less popular, less updated framework is the safest decision for yes. hooking your business on. It's super interesting what you're saying because it sounds like you're originally a Node.js developer that, that you have experience with Node.js. No. I have experience. Uh, it was, it was, this was at the time that like Palantir was a pure Java shop and it became like, it's time for us to go JavaScript. So this is the only Node project that I've ever done. <laughs> got it, got it. It was the one and then, and then we never <laughs> used it again. So we have this like, we have this one project for forever that was built in Node and, and nothing else ended up being... I uh, used uh, on top of that. It was great. Um, uh, good experience at the time, but man, I did not like JavaScript. <laughs> got it, got it. Awesome. So <laughs> just to, just to, it's going to be very interesting for me to hear. So you've used Atlas and now sounds like you're using Terraform Cloud uh, in your personal, in your personal life. So you, you, you know the products, you know the evolution of the value proposition. What do you think are the biggest things that uh, have been introduced to those solutions in the last couple of years that really create a big difference? What are the big improvements from your point of view in those solutions? I think the big one is really looking at self-service and accessibility. This is pretty a pretty common problem is um, 
as much as you tried to hide the complexity of infrastructure uh, of the underlying infrastructure through infrastructure as code, you can end up in these world where things are just too nuanced, like, and it takes too much information to, it takes too much experience to even know what the inputs should be to some of these functions. And if you're trying to expose that to a thousand person org, it's not sufficient to try to assume they're all going to understand instance types and things like that. So I think a lot of things are heading towards this self-service model of saying, we need ways to uh, expose infrastructure to non-infrastructure people and keep them within inside a contained boundary and leave the Terraform development with the DevOps engineers. Um, and I think that's, it's a really interesting thing because they're right that the Terraform is not good enough for a software engineer right out of college, but that's the person who needs to deploy it. You know what I mean? So Doug, you, you're putting a lot of emphasis on how you empower the vast majority of the developers that are not necessarily experts in uh, Terraform or infrastructure as code or infrastructure in general. They just want it uh, to work. They just want to deploy their, their software, deploy, uh, develop their feature, and they're not really sure about what's going on behind the scenes. Is that a good way of saying that? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big believer in the DevOps movement overall. And there's a lot of people who've taken the DevOps movement and they just hear DevOps and they think, or they've used it or, or, or taken over the term to just mean uh, automation with developers. But the people who created it, and for the life of me, I can't remember their names right now, but the people who really started coining this term, uh, that was not really what they meant. They were really focusing on the shift left mentality, this like bringing in manufacturing principles to automation. And they really focused on the idea that we should stop thinking of things in these aggressively siloed ways and that the most complex machines in the world are built as collaboration across domains like electrical engineering and aeronautics engineering at the same time helping someone develop like a car plan and the same thing for security you know like security is the big one and i've talked about this in other places but um that security should not be something you start figuring out right before deployment it should be the thing you include on the first day of considering a new project is bringing in a security expert to talk through the concerns. So I think of the same thing with infrastructure is that the ultimate goal is not to create silos between software engineers and infrastructure folks. It's to figure out how to get software folks to be closer to it. And Terraform misses the mark as far as being a perfect option for that. And so some of these options, like what about self-service Terraform modules where they can get you know, they can start figuring out infrastructure, but they don't have to be overwhelmed by it. Like somebody else can put in the detailed work and they can reuse components. I think that's incredibly compelling as a way to bridge that gap. So that's why I'm a really big fan of the self-service concept and empowerment. You mentioned self-service and you mentioned security. So let's talk more about maybe governance and guardrails. Sounds like you've been using a lot of Terraform. What about more governance capabilities? I want to mention OPA, yep. Open Policy Agent for a policy as code or a static code analysis to make sure you're not about to provision a virtual machine with a SSH open and empty password. So there are some default solutions to, to identify that like Chekhov or TerraScan or TFSEC. What do you think about static code analysis, about policy as code, about guardrails and other governance mechanisms for Terraform? I was also one of the first adopters on Sentinel, uh, trying to get, or at least from my perspective, it felt like I had to be one of the first because that was, nothing about that was good. I'm sorry, but like that first exposure to Sentinel was rough. When Sentinel is HashiCorp's proprietary 
policy language. And uh, it was a big struggle between not a, their own custom language that wasn't fully implemented. It, what, it They didn't open source it. So it wasn't easy to get widely adopted policies. It was very difficult to write. But like, I cared a lot about the concept. So I spent time, I tried to build my own version of this. Um, but if you take a step back, there's like, there's cloud security posture management systems like Dome 9 and other things that look at your cloud from after it's all said and done. Say, how, how do I feel about the IP addresses you have open to the internet? And they can say, I don't know what your intent was, but I can tell you what the result is. And I think that's yeah. a very, very powerful tool. Uh, you also yeah. have those, the concepts of the static code analysis, which is my interpretation of where you're going with this, my interpretation of the code you've written will end up here. And I can stop you before you deploy something insecure. And they're both very interesting options. And I mentioned Dome 9, but there's Turbot, uh, there's Pr there's uh, Prism Cloud or something from uh, Palo Alto Networks, whatever their name is. Like, There's like multiple vendors on all these sides. Um, and so OPA fits in the first side, right? Um, it's it's not analyzing the end state in reality. It's analyzing the intent that you have by looking at the files. So you always have the gap of asking yourself, what if this looks fine now, but it's not actually fine when all the automation and all the modules kick in and the other module updates something. Um, but I think as far as tools to pick, uh, I, I feel like OPA, because it's open source, you see it everywhere now in a lot of yep. different tools and technology. And I think it's table stakes now, which is an interesting thing for Terraform Cloud to consider is that like, I can get another company's OPA policy files now and apply that as opposed to, uh, I don't know anyone that would provide you Sentinel's policies for their Terraform. Yeah, so again, for those who are not familiar with Sentinel, Sentinel is a proprietary HashiCorp policies code framework. And I know that a lot of uh, HashiCorp Terraform Cloud, Terraform Enterprise customers were uh, uh, just wanted to use open policy agent in their solutions. And not sure if you know, but they, uh, Terraform Cloud introduced open yep. policy agent support a few months ago in a beta. And just like a couple of weeks ago, it's officially a GA. So now HashiCorp customers can just use their uh, non-vendor locking, a free open source policy as code, de facto standard, open policy agent. And yeah. you now have an option to choose from. And I think that's uh, that's what HashiCorp has done uh, throughout uh, the history of uh, allowing you to have a non-vendor locking kind of, uh, you know, like multi-cloud therefore being uh, multi-cloud, Vagrant being able to uh, provision VMs in different types of uh, hypervisors. And now supporting OPA, it's not their open source. It's uh, yeah. uh, owned by a company named Styra. But whether HashiCorp owns it or not, they now support uh, the de facto standard for uh, uh, policy as code. What I don't know about OPA, and you know, this is something for commenters, you know, listeners, whoever, is whether or not OPA is accepted by the security community. Because the thing that will matter the most, to be honest, again, I've, I've run DevOps teams for like majority of my career. As much as I've worked with extremely security conscious people, it's not the thing that they're actually mostly paid to do. You're usually held accountable for delivering a service that stays online at low cost. And less, there are very few DevOps teams that report directly through a security like uh, uh, chain of command. So therefore your um, incentive structures usually set availability and cost. Um, 
So the security team is the one that actually ends up saying like, no, we need better policies here. We need to yep. get the encryption thing. And I haven't seen the security teams, at least again, I have a, I don't have the widest um, range of experience, but like, I have not seen security teams that excited about OPA from the different companies that I advise and, or, or, or I have different security people I've talked to. Um, and so they're, they're more excited about the Dome nines and Prisma clouds probably because they're not software engineers and they care more about I, different. That's what I wanted to mention. I'm not sure with, with which type of security engineers you're talking. I think the more, I don't want to say traditional, but the vast majority of security that look at the cloud resources, they have no idea that it starts with code. They just look at what's going on in the cloud resources and manage that. Yeah, they, they don't really uh, trust open policy agent. It has nothing really to do with what they're doing. But, you know, the term DevSecOps, those that are more, uh, those that are closer to the DevOps engineers and try to shift left security from, you know, when you start writing the code. Exactly. I've seen a lot of excitement from the DevSecOps teams about open policy agent, about Chekhov, about TerraScan, TFSec. Uh, so I think the security teams are also shifting left and become mm -hmm. closer to uh, to the engineering team. You do you concur? I do, but there is some the security teams. Something I've learned. I've spent a lot of time with uh, really really good security professionals, and the thing that I learned about their mindset that differed for me a little bit from DevOps is my DevOps mentality is I like to think of my cloud account as a series of segmented modules. And I think of them as like, I have a module around my service and my service works in this way. And my service works and this other service works in this other way. And all of its things are contained. I have this nice little Terraform repo that contains my little thing. And that's not actually good for security. Um, security needs to think about the totality of the things that are happening. It's like not each thing in isolation, because it turns out if you put this by itself is fine, this by itself is, you know, Active Directory can be hosted securely. Your small little test account could be, you know, hosting VMs can be done securely. They should not be done in the same place. Now it's insecure in the existence of what else is there. And that's where I see the lacking around the DevOps movement and tooling tends to be extremely centered towards this developer-centric world of, my components look like this. You're sorry, sorry, breaking things down to these components. And the security team says, like, no, I need to care about what is the end result of every, like, what's every public IP address I have in the fleet? And it's a shout out for Dome 9, where that's their forte is they have a query engine, a code engine, they have all the pieces. And they're really good at asking the question for every volume everywhere, is it encrypted? Whereas the OPA style with Terraform modules means you're going over like 100, 200 different repositories, making sure all these checks are enabled and working correctly. So I would argue that I think the DevOps community has further to go to meet security where they need to be rather than security needs to come to us. It's that we need a better mindset. That's super interesting. I can elaborate uh, on that discussion a lot more. But I think it's uh, time to finish the session today. Thank you very much, Elliot, for uh, joining our session today. For our audience, I encourage you all to search Terraform Cloud Alternatives in Google. You'll see Elliot's blog being number one. Read the blog, follow him on Medium, and I'm sure you're going to read a lot of more uh, great uh, content coming out from Elliot. 
so thank you again, Elliot, for joining uh, this, this session. And thanks, everybody, for listening to the Infrastructure as Code podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter, the IEC podcast. You can follow me as well. I'm DevOps Ohad. My name is Ohad Maizdish. It was a pleasure being the host today. Thank you, everybody, and have a great day. Bye-bye. Yeah.